Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast, brought to you by HarperCollins Publishers. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it out. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Brought to you by Library Love Laney from the Library Love Fest marketing team and we're here with a, such a special interview. I'm so excited for you guys to join us because today we are joined by Ita from the author of A Woman Is No Man and this is her debut and it's such a special book. I've been really excited about it and I've been telling all of you librarian friends and this is a story about three generations of Palestinian American women and their struggle to express their individuality within this Arab culture. Um, it's not all in the United States, but mostly. And they just go through a lot of experiences, birth, death, there's violence, secrets come out, and love in different ways than you would think. And although this is a very specific cultural experience, it's also within the grander universal female experience. So I think that's something I connected a lot with as well. So we're here with you, Tafram. Welcome. Hi, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. (laughs) And a little bit about her. She teaches college English and literature. You're also a Book of the Month ambassador. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? How did that work? Well, when I started uh, writing, I told myself that what better way to connect with the book world than to open up an Instagram account. Um, And that was also around the same time where my students really wanted me to recommend reads to them. So it was a great way for me to put books that I love that I could tell my students, hey, this is a good book. You should check it out. It's on my Instagram page. And one thing led to another in my Instagram page, which is Books and Beans. um, It's gorgeous. (laughs) And it became a place where book lovers came to connect. And Book of the Month reached out to me and said, hey, would you like to partner with us? And obviously I said yes, because they have the best selections of books every month, and I thought that would be a great way to be part of something then, to promote something that, I'm, that I love and that I think everyone should, should do every month, is have a book to read at least, along with all the other responsibilities that we have to do, but to at least have something to read. Yeah. So yeah, that's how that started. That's awesome. The Instagram account is gorgeous, and like all the stuff, I just want to cuddle up with a book. Um, So I think you're getting that across really well. It's beautiful. And also a little nugget, I didn't realize this until I was rereading the book, but the bookstore in the book is called Books and Beans, which I didn't realize. So that's fun. That was fun. I wanted to have a little bit of fun with that. I wasn't sure if I could do that or not as I was as I was my, making the final edits and deciding, okay, what should I name this bookstore? And I was like, you know what? I'm going to name it Books and Beans, and let's just have some fun with that. <laughs> it fits so well, and it, it is fun. A little nugget of info for people out there reading. So let's talk about the plot a little. Do you want to give them an overview of our our main three women that we see in the book? Yes, yeah, so our main three women are... Dea, which is um, an Arab-American, first-generation Arab-American. She's born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, and she has a very limited knowledge about her parents. Um, And then my second character is Dea's mother, Ezra, who migrates to Brooklyn when she's 17 years old to an arranged marriage to Adam, which is Dea's father. And finally, my third female character is Farida, who is Adam's mother, Ezra's mother-in-law. 
and also obviously Daya's um, grandmother. So we get three generations, three Arab women, all three who are living in Brooklyn, New York, some who migrated there, and Daya, of course, who was born there. So we get the different perspectives of what it means to be dislocated, displaced, and the culture clash, and trying to find your identity with all of these um, battles internally. Yeah, I know this was, I, I think part of the reason that I'm so, I think part of the reason this book is really special to me is because in your intro to the galley and your letter and also behind the book, you really talk about what it means to come out in this community and tell this story because in, I'm just going to read a little bit of what it says. You said, where I come from, we've learned to silence ourselves. We've been taught that silence will save us. Where I come from, we keep these stories to ourselves. To tell them to the outside world is unheard of, dangerous, the ultimate shame. Um, and I think that's at the beginning of the book. But really, it's so brave that you're telling this story. Is there anything maybe you're worried about or any pushback you've gotten so far? Um, well, there's so many things that people can be worried about when they're writing. So it's, um, but I guess for me personally, um, I felt a lot of pressure writing this story because I knew that I was one of the first to, to come out and to um, talk about the Arab American experience with such a um, honest view on the Arab culture in a way that we don't really see um, when we do read Arab stories. Um, most often so i was afraid that my culture was going to think that i was betraying them by telling our secrets um, but i was also afraid of negatively portraying my culture in a way that kind of um, further stereotypes them because arabs are already stereotyped by the media we're already stereotyped um, in the news um, even in schools like when I first started working I was always the foreign girl the Arab girl and then there was all there was always all these stereotypes associated with me many of which I talk about in my book so it's like I I was afraid to further in um, to further highlight things that I don't like about my culture instead of trying to um, spread a positive a more positive message um, so those are fears in my head as I was writing, but ultimately I had to stay true to myself and my voice. And that meant um, sticking up to the women who I chose to make the center of my story and sticking up to their stories who are not, who, which are not told. Like their stories are not told anywhere because of this shame surrounding domestic abuse, surrounding arranged marriages, surrounding pretty much not having a say-so in our culture. It's a very patriarchal society. And so I had to put my fears aside and say, this story is not for, um, it's not just for Arab culture as a whole, it's for Arab women. And so they they are ultimately the center of what I'm trying to do. I hope I can do their stories justice and just make them heard. Yeah, I mean, throughout the whole story, I really could connect some, and honestly, a world I don't know much about. Um, and I feel like I learned so much and, Maybe even if I can't understand fully, uh, you know, I have the questions ready that I'm equipped to ask maybe to understand someone a little bit better. So I think you did such an amazing job with that. Thank um, you. And really showing the inside. I mean, I know it's about the women, but I think you even do such a good job showing a lot of the pressures on men, too. I mean, Adam, who's Ezra's husband in the story, you know, he's the he's the first son so everything mm -hmm. falls on him he wants to be a priest but he can't do that because he's got to run this store and 
I mean, a lot of the times I think the women are surprised because they're like, oh, you're a man, it's fine. Um, <laughs> but yeah. in the world, that's not always the way it is, you know. Um, I don't know. I think it's it's so lovely. I think you've just encapsulated everything really well. So, um, okay, so like moving on a little into the story itself, uh, one of my favorite lines is like on page 10, and it's <laughs> when Ezra's talking to her mother before she gets married, and her mother is saying, you know, like, lo- like love has nothing to do with this marriage. And she's like, oh, but I want that. And she said, her mother says, soon you'll learn that there's no room for love in a woman's life. There's only one thing you'll need, and that's patience. Um, and I think that it does such a good job of setting up the book. But why is this notion of romantic love feel so unattainable to these women? And that's... Um that's a really good question, and um, it's something that I've often had to ask myself personally growing up, uh, even watching Disney movies and watching um, Princesses Fall in Love, looking in my own family, I knew that um, there's a woman's primary role is to take care of her children, take care of her husband, um, and bear any hardships that come with those roles, so marriage and motherhood. It's not about falling in love. I mean, the, an entire relationship in Arab culture, Arabs are uh, mostly not allowed to date. So um, most marriages are arranged marriages that are set up between parents. So the idea of love, in a sense, it's not like they're out falling in love with each other and dating. It's the whole setup to begin with is very formal. And because they're not allowed to date, the idea of love for most Arab women is not something that they think about, even if they want. So when I was getting married, like, of course I wanted to fall in love, but in the back of my mind, I knew that, well, that's not really how it happens in Arab culture. We don't fall in love. Um, and the role for women is marriage, motherhood, taking care of your children, and bearing with your husband when he has to work, because it's a patriarchal society. So more than likely, especially in the older generation, women are not encouraged to work. So her job is to just be by her husband's side and help him um, be, or bear with him when he's working and, and not coming home, et cetera. Yeah. Um, I feel like throughout the book, well, I don't feel like, <laughs> throughout the book, women are seen in a way as like, I mean, they're referred to as like dilemmas or temporary possessions because they have to be kind of put into this marriage role pretty quickly. Do you think that a lot of the time the daughters feel this kind of emotional abandonment from their moms because of this, that because they're, they are temporary and they don't want to get too attached? Or do you think it's just a learned love, showing love? Yeah, I feel, I don't like to, I mean, from personal experience, I do feel like it, women grow up to feel like they're abandoned from their family and they're not valued because sons are the valued. Sons are valued. So even um, no matter how many sons a woman may have, it's automatically if she's pregnant, oh, I want another boy. um, Girls are a burden because in this culture when there's such a huge focus on maintaining a woman's modesty, maintaining her virginity, making sure she's pure when she gets married, and that's, that's a lot, that's a big burden on families, on mothers and fathers. So the number one thing for them is let's, let's make sure she gets married and out of the house as soon as possible before she is corrupted, I guess. And that is amplified dramatically when you're in America. 
Um, so you're still finding these arranged marriages in Palestine and, and across the Middle East, but um, it becomes even harder for parents that um, migrate to America and are raising their children, their girls, in the middle of um, American culture and how are we going to shelter our children? And so, yes, the daughters do grow up feeling a sense of, um, well, I'm second to my brothers. I can't, um, my parents are trying to get rid of, of me as fast as possible. So there is kind of a trauma and an attachment, attachment issue, at least in my, you know, in my experience there was. Yeah. So I guess two things off of that. I, I didn't realize how, I mean, I guess that's my own ignorance, but I didn't realize how much pressure there was on having a daughter but really wanting a, a son and you do a good job of telling that struggle, you know, between an internal struggle, you love this daughter, but you, you know, you, you're always being pressured in the background. Um, but then my second thing to say is in America, because the family does move to America, they but they create kind of their own little habitat within this house. I mean, they're not going anywhere. They don't go really past Brooklyn, the women anyway don't go past Brooklyn and they kind of isolate themselves there. They don't speak the language well. But then you have this like also mirror where, you know, Adam's taking her outside and saying you don't have to wear hijab. Like you can wear, you don't have to wear that. It's America. So like how did you, I guess, own experience and in the writing the book, but how did you weigh those two things that we are, we are this culture, but we're also in America and have to live there? Yeah, so I mean, that was a that was a a choice that I had to think about because I wanted I wanted to be as very as accurate as possible to the experiences of immigrants coming to America in the 80s and 90s, and um, I wanted to let the readers know that just because these families are very traditional, very cultural, and are very sheltered, um, that religion and culture are two separate things. And by having Adam insist that Ezra take off her hijab, it's not only showing how desperate they are to um, fit into American culture, how desperate, well, not fit in, but how desperate they are to like not be criticized and condemned for their appearance mm -hmm. and not to feel so outcasted all the time. So that was one one of the reasons that I wanted to show with that, with that move of him asking her to take off her hijab. But mm -hmm. I also wanted to show that they're really clinging onto tradition, not religion. And, and that's what's most important to them at the end of the day, because if they were a religious family, if Adam and Ezra and Farida, if they were a religious family, they would never have, they would never have um, taken off the hijab, regardless of any condemnation that they were mm -hmm. going to get from, you know, their neighbors or anyone in Bay Ridge. They would have, you know, they would have stuck to their religion. But because they're not, um, I wanted, I wanted to show that through through that little um, incident with the hijab. So I don't know if I made, I don't know if it was a great way of showing it, but that was my intention behind it. Yeah, no, it's great explanation. So I, and I also think that the small sliver within their little, their little ecosystem that they've created in this house where they feel safe, you know, they go through all of the routines of the tea and all of this stuff, making food, but Esra has a window that she loves. She looks out and, you know, not only books help her escape, but this window is her way of seeing the outside world. And I guess going back to the women not really leaving their block unless they have to, what's stopping them from taking that step outside? Because they could sit on the porch and read, or they could, but why is this house a comfort for them? Well, it's for two things. And the idea of, I wanted to really like, um, 
highlight the idea of modesty. Mm-hmm. So even sitting on the porch would be um, immodest in a way because um, you're, you're, if you're sitting outside in your nightgown or um, in any way that's immodest, it can kind of be attention-seeking. And this culture is not about seeking attention to itself. It's, it's about hiding behind um, in, indoors or even hiding yourself. You, whether it's with a physical garb or whether it's emotionally, it's all about concealing. And so having her stay inside the house, it's emotionally, she has to conceal her thoughts. Emotionally, she has to conceal herself, not just physically. So it, it was a way to suggest both a physical and a mental um, concealment on her end. And that's why she looks at the world from the inside of a house mm. through a window. Oh, that's, yeah, I'm not going to lie, after reading the book, I would walk by, I live in Queens, which is not Brooklyn, but I would walk by houses and look at windows, and I just was thinking, like, how crazy it would be to have to sit in this room, you know, a window is so important to her, and, you I mean, obviously there's a reason that one's not in her bedroom, but she has that one window that means so much, and it, it stuck with me. Okay, so the next thing I was going to bring up is, correct me if I'm saying this wrong, but Nasib, Destiny, so this is a big big part in the book you know women are told that this this life of marriage and children is their destiny and it's kind of separated from a destiny where you might look forward to in some ways um obviously you have the character's destiny in your hands when you're writing but they don't have that luxury um so how did you why is that a recurring theme and why is destiny such a important factor in their lives and do they ever feel like they can get away from this destiny or make their own? Yeah, so, um, and this is a concept that I actually um, struggled with because I wanted to, I didn't, I wanted to make sure that I was properly um, portraying it because destiny is always thought of to be this positive thing and and in our characters' lives, it's this, I guess, um, like crutch. So like, oh, it's okay if your life isn't going the way you want it to be. This is your destiny. You can't change it. So it almost kind of makes our characters have a more passive role. And and this is something that's very predominant in Arab culture, or at least it was in my experiences growing up. Whenever I would ask my grandmother or my mom, you know, how do I know if I'm making the right decision? Or how come, um, how come I can't do this or do that? The most common question is, well, you know, you have to rely on destiny. You can't really make these active choices. Whatever happens will happen. And that's that's the way it's supposed to be. So it kind of almost forces you to think passively about things and to wait around for life to happen and not to um, make your own choices and be active in your own life, at least for women. This is a phrase that's often told for women as opposed to men, or at least that's how it, that's how I've you know heard it growing up. It was always told to me. I'd, I'd always hear my mom or her mom tell her, well, it's okay, that's your nasib, that's your destiny. You know, there's no point in worrying about it because that's just how it's supposed to be. It is what it is. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's what it is. I. I think that's why um, it's we rely on destiny so much as a culture because it's a way of pa- making us more passive. And um, perhaps sometimes when you do feel like it's not in your hands as a woman and you are under a lot of hardships, it kind of it makes it a little bit easier to deal with when you know that you didn't cause it. Like it's not mm. it's not your fault that this is happening. It's just your destiny. Like this is this is God. You know, God yeah. wants this to happen. Um, so yeah, it's more of passivity and not um, and and not having that 
own free your own free will or or becoming more um active in your life and your decisions yeah destiny in a way in this setting i mean it can be so many things it can have so many connotations it can be a positive outlook you're you know what's in my destiny or it can be you know a prison <laughs> this is my destiny yeah. i can't get away from it um exactly I, yeah exactly. and words mean so much in this book as well you know like one word can sum someone up and that's just what they are and move on um but words in general the books mean so much to all, all three three of the women um sarah who is adam's sister the sister-in-law and the other two women you know they grow up with these books and I know um in the first part of the book when you're explaining behind the book you say like you didn't feel represented when you walked in a bookstore is this your love letter for that like seeing characters seeing yourself represented in this book yeah absolutely um I the reason I started writing um the main reason I started writing is because I was teaching at college in North Carolina. I was teaching a literature class, and I was recommending reads to my students and teaching some reads, and I realized that all the books that I love and all the books that I um, recommend, none of them are, are told by Arab women that are telling the Arab-American story. Um, and so I told myself that why why not and even growing up i couldn't really connect with and as i was a big book nerd and as much as i loved books i could never quite find the arab american me growing up in new york and having to struggle being an american and being an arab at the same time and so i i wrote this book for for girls like me and and women like my mother arab arab immigrants that um are struggling to be heard and seen and not only in Arab in Arab culture but in, in American society so yeah <laughs> yeah uh, it's I get that completely and I think this is going to be a great step in that like people can see themselves represented and I, I mean that's important you know you're reading about these heroes and you want to see yourself in these books um, so I guess my last question is what do you want someone maybe outside of the Arab community to take away from this book after reading? So like not an Arab that's reading this book? No. Hmm. Um, wow, that's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the, the most thing that I want outside readers to um, get from my story or understand is the the day-to-day lives of people that they might have seen in the streets but not but they don't they don't really have a glimpse into their world so i wanted to give um arab americans a voice and a story even though i deal with dark aspects of my community i wanted to show that we are still people that have internal conflicts and struggle with both men and women even though i focus on primarily on the women i wanted to show the struggles of the men too, and the struggles of being an immigrant in this country, and not um, and not belonging and feeling like you always have to struggle to fit in. And so I hope that I could give other people an outside glimpse into a, a better understanding of Arab culture and Arab American immigrants, to be more specific, or Arab Americans. That's wonderful. Um... That's all I have for you. I have enjoyed this so much, and I know our listeners are going to 
enjoy listening back and and learning all about this book. Um, So this has been a conversation with Itaf Ram, the author of A Woman Is No Man, and the book comes out March 5th, 2019, so be sure to check it out. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.